Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the first Sunday of Christmas, which this year falls on December 27th. One content notification for this episode is that in our conversation about the gospel, our third reading, we do talk about the prison industrial complex and the way it is tied into slavery and the Stanford experiment. Since we're not using a blog anymore, check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Our deep dive today is on Anna and Simeon. This gospel passage that we're going to hear today from the second chapter of Luke includes Anna and Simeon, elderly prophets who we meet just this once in the Bible. Simeon is the one in this story who gets actual spoken lines, not terribly surprising for the Bible, and those verses inspired a piece of Christian worship music, which is often called the Nunc Dimittis, which in Latin means, Now You Dismiss and it's often sung at the end of a worship service or just after communion. Though these days, it's more commonly encountered either in special worship services or in congregations that are very high church, very uber liturgical, because extra pieces of the service make the service longer, and so this is often removed for time's sake. There are many, many, many versions of this piece, and some of them are very emotional and important to people who grew up with them. For ELCA Lutherans, who remember before our current Cranberry hymnal, before that, there was the Green LBW hymnal, which I think of the three worship settings, uh, one of them did have a Nunctimitus in it, uh, which my church growing up usually skipped, personally. And the Red SBH hymnal before that had a couple of them in the various services uh, in that book. And several of them can be found on YouTube or elsewhere, and it's also a popular choral piece. Also, this is one of just three canticles that occur in the Gospels. Together, they ground some of the daily prayer services in Christian traditions. So the three canticles are actually also all found in the Gospel of Luke. The first one is Zechariah's song which is also called the Benedictus in Latin, which is the main source for morning prayer. Mary's song, a.k.a. the Magnificat, which we talked about some on Advent 4, is the main source for evening prayer, which is particularly folks who are familiar with Holden evening prayer will be very familiar with how the Magnificat is stated in that service. And then Simeon's song, the Nunctimittis, which is the main source for night prayer, which is also known as Compline. And these are more common in worshiping communities that are high liturgy, as Kay mentioned, but there are also many people who incorporate them into their daily spiritual practices by doing morning prayer, evening prayer, night prayer, that sort of thing. Simeon's song and the rest of this passage are also often referenced by elderly people looking to find meaning in their later years of life. And this makes me think of Granny Weatherwax, who is one of those people who seems to have had an awful lot of later years in her life. She just seems to have always been elderly. And she's from the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett. And still being of sharp mind, uh, she has absolutely no trouble finding meaning in her life, mostly because she has to go around fixing the problems that other people have caused. 
more using headology, which is her word for psychology, than actual magic, but sometimes that too. She's just that kind of witch. Nice. As we dive into the readings for this Sunday, our first reading is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 through chapter 62, verse 3. The prophet Isaiah compares the gifts of God to luxurious clothing or a garden's growth. And Isaiah promises not to rest until Israel's vindication by God's hand is complete. So one of the themes that came up for me in this passage was the theme of clothing. The whole first part of Isaiah 61 talks about the gifts of God as luxurious clothing, breastplates, and those sorts of things. And the way I think about clothing is very different, particularly given that we're in a pandemic. I think about the ways that I like show up for worship, leadership, and the top half of my body is like wearing my clerical collar and the bottom half is in sweatpants. Except for yesterday when we recorded a bunch of pieces for our Christmas Eve service, which I don't know, if you are part of a congregation that pre-records worship, God bless you, because that takes so much more work than just showing up for Zoom worship. Yeah, I have I'm to say, I will not miss that. the pandemic, but I am definitely going to miss the worshiping in yoga pants part. Yeah, so. Ruth. But also, in Divergent, for example, the different factions each are associated with different colors of clothing. And so gray is for abnegation, and blue is for candor, and... And so each of the different factions have like black or black and white or yellowish and warm colors and stuff to indicate who they are. And then the factionless group has like just a mishmash of all of the different clothing. Tie-dye? That like, not so much tie-dye, but like a piece of gray, like gray pants and a yellow shirt or like that sort of thing. So, so they just like get the cast-offs. Yes. Yeah. And it's that they get the cast-offs from those people who are part of factions. Ah. They're the, like, designated charity yeah. of everyone, which is problematic. When we reach verse 10 in this passage, verse 10 of chapter 61, to be clear, we're going to skip into chapter 62 in a minute here, so the numbers will start over. But in verse 10 of chapter 61, we hear that God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And let's remember that in the Bible, there was no such thing as fast fashion. You could not go to the local H&M and pick up 14 <laughs> different tops for $12. I don't think today you can go to an H&M and pick up that many clothes for well, $12. Well, no. <laughs> That's a whole other problem. You well, can pick yes. up that many quality of clothes. Like, it, if you could pick up that many pieces of clothes, it's not like anyone who made any of them would be being paid a living wage. So, like, there's layers right. and layers and layers of issues with the garment industry. But in biblical times, all clothes were handmade, and the fabric was all hand-woven. Did you know that antique fabric was often actually much higher quality than what we can find made today? Perhaps that seems obvious, or perhaps that's a surprise. For example... Modern linen is generally not great quality. It tends to be scratchy and very wrinkly compared to what antique linen would have been like, because it's not cost-effective for modern corporations to weave linen the way that linen is supposed to be woven. Wool and cotton can both be woven the same way, because the fibers that a person uses to weave wool or cotton are all very short. 
but linen fibers are naturally much longer, and so they require a different kind of loom, especially when you're talking about mass-producing stuff, than wool or cotton would use. But having an extra loom around for just one kind of cloth isn't really cost-effective, so linen has generally, for the last couple of decades, been chopped up into smaller fibers and then woven on the same types of looms as wool and cotton are. And because of that, the linen that we can buy now is pretty poor quality on the whole. <laughs> but if you find a piece of antique linen from like a hundred years ago, it will look and feel entirely different than the linen that you can buy today. Uh, very rich feeling and luxurious. And it looks extraordinary. Interesting. I did not know that, but I have a friend who does a lot of stuff with fabric, and so now I'm intrigued. Yes, I've been learning more about the history of fabric and textiles recently, and I will put a link in our episode description to the YouTube video that talks all about this from an actual fashion historian. Nice. I was drawn in by verse 1, chapter 63, where we hear, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. And it got me thinking of Pandora's box, actually, and particularly the episode of Doctor Who that deals with that, where the doctor gets locked inside and there's a whole outbreaking of like chaos and all sorts of things. And it's the first time, actually, that... Amy Pond as a child is like that's how Amy Pond is introduced into the series as a child and there's a whole outbreaking of chaos and stuff and so like I mean maybe the vindication is not quite so chaotic but there is this like all of a sudden it breaks open and who knows what's gonna come out kind of thing yeah it might be a little chaotic, because it kind of sounds like God is planning on turning the world upside down. So true. that sounds kind of chaotic. That is kind of what God does. Yeah. I do kind of wonder, now that I think about it, was the fish fingers and custard combination from that episode of Doctor Who influenced by all that chaos going on, leaking into the world? Or mm. is that actually something that the Doctor would like in a normal, non-extra chaotic universe? Uh, that's true. That's like... At camp, our hike day lunch was like tortillas and then peanut butter and jelly and carrot sticks and celery sticks and cheese sticks and gorp and... and Whatever I, you could carry and not spoil uh, in a yeah, backpack like it, for a couple hours. Yeah, and I've frequently wondered if that meal... I loved that meal. It was so good. But was it good just because of the context where like we're all exhausted and hungry and at the end, of, like at the midpoint of our hike? Or was it actually like good and we enjoyed it and we would enjoy it even if it weren't the middle of a long hike day. Well, if you decide one day this week to have that for lunch, you might be able to find out. It's true. I probably won't. Okay. I think I know the answer and I don't want to ruin the meal. That's fair. But who knows about the doctor? True. Also, I don't actually plan on trying to combine fish fingers and custard. I No. no. Thank you. I I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I definitely well, yes. don't, but, like, Obviously. yeah. Well, no. I think they do actually make vegetarian fish sticks. I'm, I'm using air quotes. It's but true. I, I did don't have know that chicken they nuggets would. last night for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still don't know that that would be a good combination. Yeah, no. Yes, I read verse one, and uh, the vindication shines out like the dawn 
phrase reminded me of the October Day books by Sean and McGuire. I'm currently in the middle of the first one, Rosemary and Rue, and I have been for a while, but I will finish it one of these days. <laughs> and in those books, the dawn is actually such a powerful event every day that it undoes any illusions or magic that are exposed to it. So if you're outside <laughs> when dawn happens, and as far as I can tell, really, cloud cover or anything like that does not have any effect. But if you're outside mm -hmm. when that happens and you are a magical creature of some kind, um, or you have cast a magical illusion on yourself, uh, that will be undone. And the experience of the dawn is so strong and so visceral to many magical beings that they intentionally avoid being outside at the time of dawn. She describes it a couple of different ways, but it kind of sounds like an extremely cold shower that also gives you the screaming heebie-jeebies. So hmm. I, I don't think I would want to be outside for that either. But Yeah, that sounds unpleasant. Yeah. In verse 2, um, we hear, You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the becoming one will give. Uh, and that, of course, naming always makes me think of, as a trans person in particular, the way that trans people receive new names. And it's not everybody does, right? Like, I still go by Emily. But there's this newness to names, which is really quite biblical when we think about Sarai to Sarah, Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, that there's, there's a biblicalness to receiving a new name and to the power and meaning behind that. But there's also like in Divergent, Tris and Four both take new names when they join their new faction. And it's a way of differentiating from the from abnegation, which they both came from. Um, but it's also a way of like claiming their identity now. Or like in Doctor Who, there's one episode where River Song names the Doctor, which, like, nobody names the Doctor because it's the Doctor. But River Song, who's also a Time Lord, does name the Doctor, and the way that that holds so much power for the Doctor and for the course of time and space and all of those things is really powerful. Right. And also, she gets a new name herself at one point, doesn't she? Yeah, she has multiple names, so spoilers, her name given to her at birth is Melody Pond. And then through various translations of her name, so having her name written in the language of the Time Lords is part of how it becomes River Song, because it's written last name first, and so then right. Pond becomes River and melody becomes song and so then she becomes river song and so it's it's this beautiful like journey of her song and the ways that it takes on new yeah. meanings for her um and a brief shout out to my friend river who i was talking to about this passage and so that is why there are so many doctor who references because <laughs> river is wonderful and helps me think of them our second passage for this episode is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul explains that God sent Jesus, God's Son, to us as one of us in order to truly understand us and make us God's own children. So one of the themes for this passage is children, um, as we are. 
becoming God's own children. But one of the things that popped up for me was this one episode of The West Wing. It's one of their holiday episodes where there are children who are visiting the White House. And when they meet President Bartlett, um, he is joking around with them and getting them to shout in a chorus, hello, Mr. President. And so like they shout it and then he's like, what? I can't hear you. And they go back and forth a little bit, which is, you know, adorable. And but that's also what I imagine the children's shouts that Paul is referring to. Right. Those shouts of the spirit um, are like the shouts of children. Yeah. Just like calling out with joy and fun. I have taken a few tricks from uh, President Bartlett in how to work with kids. But he was good at it. Yes, he's he a was. good one. In verse four, we hear that God sent her son, born of a woman, born under the law. And I was thinking about in the many, many young adult dystopias that I love, um, that the plebeians are always born under the law. But those in charge, like President Snow or Thomas in the Legend series by Marie Lu, or so many others, are above the law, right? And so the ways that to be born under the law designates you as one that's lower when we think about the hierarchy, where Katniss is born under the law in many ways. In some ways, she, like, works her way around the law. She still has to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And the closer she comes to being above the law is after she's a victor in the games, after she's given this extra power that also comes with extra danger and and stuff. But Yeah, and for that matter, this is certainly not something you only see in fiction, but you do see it in fiction quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Because when I read this verse, I had a Emily young adult dystopia in Advent moment, and (laughs) I immediately thought of an older, uh, or perhaps just earlier, young adult dystopia, The Giver by Lois Lowry, Mm -hmm. in which first Rosemary and then Jonas find the knowledge that they have too much to continue, continue living under the law of their community and need to escape, and they do so in Mm -hmm. very different ways. Yeah, I was thinking about The Giver for something else, I think, at one point and didn't mention it. But yeah, that's a... It is a good one. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 6, we hear, And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There are so many stories that are written for children that either feature orphans or just quietly get the parents out of the way early on in the storytelling uh, in other ways in order to allow the child to take center stage. This can range from, say, the boxcar children who are abandoned orphans who go live in a boxcar in the woods in order to let them take the center part of the story, to, say, the star of the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin, who has many adventures in the fields and woods near his house uh, or just inside his own head, where he is unbothered by grown-ups, at least for as long as he can manage. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is interesting to look at different stories written for children where especially when they're like books or longer series. Yes. The ways that like, as an adult looking at it, I'm like, what is going on? Like, how are the adults in this story so irresponsible or whatever? But it is part of like what needs to happen in order for the stories to be as good as they are. 
that's one of the reasons why so many of those stories take place at boarding school, because there are adults at boarding school, but it's easier to imagine children circumventing those adults when they are in a large group of other kids, and mm-hmm. those adults aren't their parents and don't really know them that well yet. So yeah, there are all kinds of different ways to get the grown-ups out of the way. Yeah, and I think about that for, like, part of what I appreciate about young adult dystopias is that frequently it's a similar thing where the adults have to get out of the way. But at least when they're teenagers, you can imagine them being capable of caring for themselves and making yeah. sure that their needs are met. Yeah, the, the 12-year-olds and such are a little harder to, yeah. Yeah. And then in verse 7, we hear about us being made children of God, and if a child, then also an heir through God. I have been watching a lot of holiday movies, especially Christmas movies lately, and so many of them right now are all about princes and princesses and inheritancy things. It's ridiculous. Like, even the holiday calendar is an inheritance thing because she inherits, she is given the calendar itself, by her grandfather, whose wife, her grandmother, wanted to give it to her before she died. And so it's just this, like, yeah, the number of inheritance things is, I I don't know what it is. Like, who inherits things these days? Like, you gotta have money and stuff to inherit things. Or, you know, grandparents with a basement in an attic. That's right. Well, and there is, like, the difference between inheriting, like, things and inheriting, like, wealth. I have already inherited one set of silver, and I am definitely on the hook for eventually inheriting, I think, three different sets of china, because I'm the only grandchild on one side and the younger on the other. So I have no idea what I'm going to do with all of those, but... That is a lot. I have inherited... Uh, miniature carousel horses that my grandfather carved. They're like half-size carousel horses. I like that. I only inherited one. My brother inherited one. My mom has one. My aunt has... Like, all of the kids slash grandkids have one, I think. But those are, like, made by my grandfather and and some of his miniature mansion Yeah, so far I've inherited a couple of pieces of furniture my great-grandfather made, but uh, that's about it. But I'm Sure, there is much that is still on its way to me. (laughs) Yes, there is something to this inheritance thing, after all. And it does seem like the holidays are when we discuss those things anyway. Because that's when we're getting together with family. Yeah, well, not this year. Well, usually, yes. But, well, and that's the other piece of those Christmas movies. That's the piece that I really get annoyed with with the Christmas movies, is they're all, like, the meaning of Christmas is family and Um, Let's be clear, that is not, in fact, the meaning of Christmas. At all. At all. In fact, you could call that idolatry. Yeah, Um, but that's, like, what Christmas is about. But I do think that culturally, this time of year, there is so much that is built up around, like, traditions and remembering. And, like, I know my grandfather's birthday is the 21st of December, and so... I always am particular about remembering him in this time and my grandmother on my dad's side died on Christmas. And so like there are things for like remembering people that maybe that's part of the thinking about inheritance that we're thinking about like the people that matter and the things that represent them. Yeah. Our gospel reading for today is Luke chapter two verses 22 through 40. 
when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple for his Jewish purification ceremony, they are met by Simeon and Anna, prophets of God, who greet Jesus with joy and tell everyone about what God has promised through Jesus. So as we mentioned in our deep dive, one of the themes for this is the hymn of praise. So the different prayer song, prayer services and prayer songs of Zechariah, Mary, and then Simeon, and the ways that people just kind of break into song in a canticle, but that there are hymns of praise in the Gospels, but also there are hymns of praise scattered throughout Scripture, which is kind of a beautiful random connection, like we talked about the other day for Advent 4 with like the TV shows where Generally, they're not musicals. There's just this random episode in every series where everything is a musical and everyone's bursting into song. Or, I suppose you could think of Gullivant, which was a fairly short-lived TV show. Uh, it had a couple of seasons, uh, but it was actually a musical. There was at least one and usually a couple of songs in every episode. It was pretty fabulous. I really enjoyed the first season. Nice. Glee also would be yes one of those things, because, you know, show choir. And but in Glee when people break out into song, it's specifically for a performance or practicing or something, right? Like with Gallivant, no, they're literally just breaking into song. It's not always. Okay. Um, there are some that are like intentionally connected to that, but some are like walking down the hall, singing a song or whatever. Okay. To be fair, I've known show choir people and they do that. So, Right? In verse 24, we hear about Mary and Joseph coming to the temple, and they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of God, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So it's the two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. Right? I mean, I know how you could offer a partridge as a sacrifice. Would you have to burn the tree? Is that how that would work? I don't know, but do you think that this is where the two turtle doves comes from? Possibly. Uh, there are weirder things. Right? Two turtle doves sounds a lot better than two young pigeons. It doesn't quite have the same syllable. Now I'm wondering where the three French hens come from. And, like, why are they French? I don't know. Right? Like, I don't know. Is that, like, of... a, a type of hen? Like, I know that there are Rhode Island reds and things, and so... Oh, I bet, I bet it is, like, a type places, of... But... I bet it is. Just like a turtle dove is a type of dove. Oh my gosh, can you imagine them, like, with a little scarf and a beret, and, like, hanging out with Pepe Le Le Pew? (laughs) That would be fantastic. Here, I was thinking about, like, the partridge in a pear tree. I've seen a picture once of, like, an actual partridge of the, like, family, the musical family, (laughs) like, and they're, like, the, like, face is superimposed on a pear tree. We might share that on social media. Who knows? You never know when David Cassidy just may show up out of nowhere. In verse 26, we hear that it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed. So prophecies like this can be kind of dangerous, especially when people take them seriously. (laughs) They can lead people to do incredibly risky things or strange things. For example, in fan fiction, there is a relatively new genre of stories where the stories are set in an alternate universe where soulmates exist and are taken seriously. And in some of those stories, you have to meet your soulmate before you can die. Hmm. And 
therefore people who haven't met their soulmate yet will take on uh, incredibly risky tasks or will go like explore a thing because they know they'll come back because they have to meet their soulmate or something like that but then of course there's the question of do you really know if you've met your soulmate yet like what if you met your soulmate and you didn't realize it there are a whole bunch of different ways those stories go. But if you don't recognize your soulmate when you meet them, all sorts of extraordinary and terrible things can happen. And so I don't know if uh, if we can know if we would recognize our soulmates if we met them. But Simeon, at least, certainly recognized Jesus when he met Jesus. So, I mean, let's that. be real. If I have met my soulmate, I have not recognized them yet. Otherwise, I would not still be single. I like to think I've met mine. Yeah, well, you're also married, so that's probably yes. a good thing to bank on. And for the record, I was referencing my husband, not like, <laughs> yeah, no, that would be weird. Okay. That's fair. Although I do think that, like, I mean, the concept of soulmates is interesting, but there's people in my life who could be soulmates of the non-romantic variety. Oh, yes. Most of these genres uh, in fan fiction include the possibility for platonic soulmates. Nice. And also some of them include multiple soulmates, like you might have one platonic and one romantic or something like that. It's like asexuality and polyamory are part of human nature. Yes. Uh, And then we reach verses 35 and 36, where we hear Simeon say, uh, This child is destined to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Mm, Ominous. Which is... I have to say, I've never heard anybody focus on these verses in a sermon. I'm not actually sure that I remember someone doing a sermon on Simeon and Anna other than me. I've done a few of them. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know that I've attended a service where someone did. But in Bible studies and such, we don't talk about these verses. Okay, I was going to say, I think we also frequently skip this Sunday in favor of having Epiphany be on this day a lot of the time. Right, or doing like a Christmas cantata. So, yes, I don't know that I remember anyone ever focusing on these verses, even in a Bible study, but Jesus being a sign that will be opposed in such a way that the inner thoughts of people will be revealed, that kind of jumped out at me in part because of the times we're living in. Um, Like, say, how one's inner thoughts about one's neighbors and how you should treat them are often revealed when you are under great stress. Like when you're faced with a great tragedy or with a difficulty, there is a Twilight Zone episode that comes to mind uh, called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, Hmm. where there is this little uh, neighborhood, uh, maybe a block or two uh, worth of people uh, in a suburb, and for various reasons, they come to believe that they are under nuclear attack, and civilization kind of melts that night, and all of their true thoughts about each other are revealed. And then after they realize it's not the case, they realize what they've just done. Or for that matter, if you're living in a pandemic, you get to find out what all sorts of people think about how you should treat your neighbors when you're Mm -hmm. under stress and possibly a danger to them. Yeah, that's interesting because I think that reminds me of the prequel for Hunger Games about the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Snakes and Songbirds, one of the two. It does um, President Snow's, like, growing up and how he got involved with the Hunger Games and how the Hunger Games really caught on. And part of what the adults in his life are trying to convince him of is that, like, human nature, particularly for the people from the districts, is to attack each other and to be at each other's throats. 
they presumably prove this by like starving people and giving them one option to save their life and it's by killing all of the other people and there is this sense that like this is human nature but really it's like there are so many extra stresses and fears and scarcity of food and life that go into getting people to fight that like if they actually had their needs met they wouldn't be fighting with each other but because they don't they're fighting with each other and I think about that with the Twilight Zone episode too that like there is this intense amount of stress so it's not that like human nature is revealed it's that when we put people under pressure it brings out many times the worst of people and not necessarily the best sometimes the best but like a lot of times it's the worst of people because we're scared yeah I think also that might have something to do with whether or not you've been taught how to act when you're under stress or scared Mm. like there's the old psychological experiment called the Stanford experiment, I think, where they took a bunch of college students and uh, made them pretend to be prisoners and prison guards Mm -hmm. uh, for like a few days. And they had to stop it almost immediately because their behavior got so terrible. But someone later on, and I do not remember like where this was, and I'm not entirely sure I could find the article again with Google, but uh, so no promises. But they tried it again with people in a different culture. And because of how that culture approached stress and difficulty, that group had a very different reaction. And uh, all of the people involved in the experiment actually tried to make the experience better for each other um, Mm. because they had been taught how to react under stress. Well, and I think there's a clear statement that that makes about our criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex, right? That like clearly the way that we do crime and punishment and prison and imprisonment is not healthy and it's not intended to be healthy. It's not intended to help people. Yeah. It's intended to be punitive. Um, And what many other countries do is a more restorative approach. And if we, actually wanted to restore community and restore people to community and make reparations for harm that has, and that has been committed, we would not be putting people in prison and we would not be incarcerating people. But incarceration is the only thing left of slavery. Like it's the only legal form of slavery in this country is if you're incarcerated, you can be made to work for free. And so there's, there's just like so much tied up in racism and criminal justice and the way we criminalize people and incentivize crime, right? To have for-profit prisons as part of that. And, yeah. yeah. And the way that we talk about the correction system in order to encourage certain types of people to go into that as their career and so on. Yeah. yeah it's awful. And then in verse 36 to 37a, uh, we hear about another prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84, which is a long time to be by yourself in the context of a meaningful relationship. Like the length of the relationship was really short, which actually reminded me of the relationship between River Song and the doctor, where like, because they're both time lords, 
they're kind of going in reverse in their time. So the more River knows the doctor, the less the doctor knows River. And the more the doctor knows River, the less River knows the doctor. And so there's like different ways that they overlap and don't overlap. But it's spread instead of like Anna, who had all seven years at the beginning. It's like over the course of 84 years, maybe they have seven years spread throughout. And there's like a different way that those are meaningful and those relationships are meaningful to them. But they're also so complicated because they initially have to like check in and say, have we done this yet? Have we done this yet? (laughs) And like figure out where they are. And River has like this beautiful notebook and the doctor can never read it because of spoilers, sweetie. I don't have her accent, so I can't really imitate her that well. No, that's okay. I was also thinking that it reminds me of the novel The Time Traveler's Wife. Oh, I haven't ever read that. I think I have that, but I haven't read it. It's it's pretty interesting. The fact that the female main character also is named my middle name, that makes me fond of it. But mm. uh, it is an interesting method of storytelling. But yeah, those, those short relationships that are so intense uh, do show up very often, not only in fiction, but also in real life. Mm-hmm. Also, if you want another reference that is a little less classically geeky, but definitely still uh, nerdery to some folks, there is also Anna of Frozen, Mm. who sadly only got to have a fairly short relationship with her parents in her life. And yet you can still see how that relationship Mm -hmm. uh, impacted her later life in the movies. I thought you were going to talk about Hans and I was going to be like, that was not (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Let's be clear. I do still love the Love is an Open Door song. Uh, and I try to imagine it with someone other than Hans. But mm-hmm. uh, still. I want to find somebody who finishes, with whom we finish each other's sandwiches. Sandwiches? <laughs> I think that's actually a reference to a TV show, but it's not. Oh, really? Seen. Yeah. I, I saw that somewhere. It, it was apparently that. one of those things that they put in for the adults to make them smile when they have to watch kids' movies. So. <laughs> I just like that movie. Yeah. Quite a bit. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the second Sunday of Christmas with our special guest, Dr. David Cordell. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Spotify, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Pax Vobiscum. Vobiscum.